0: I know this isn't easy and believe me I didn't come to this decision easily
1: Governor Christie announced the state is taking over the Camden
0: City Schools nearly 90% of Camden schools 23 out of 26 are in the bottom 5% performance wise of all in New Jersey including the three lowest performing schools in the state Governor Christie was back today announcing his choice for the city's new superintendent. superintendent. Payman Rohanifard. Superintendent Mr. Payman Rohanifar. The new superintendent is Payman Rohanifar, who went through an interview with Christie himself. He lavished praise on his hand-picked superintendent Payman Rohanifar. Rohanifar explained
1: that even after some heavy trimming, the state-run school district still has a $47 million deficit. He
0: has a compelling personal story that includes his family's escape from Iran after the revolution and their struggles in America which included a period of homelessness. I believe in my bones that the American dream can live strongly here in Camden. And one reason I believe that is because I have lived that dream. We're not acting because we've got everything perfect and we're not acting because we believe we know better. We're acting because inaction is immoral. It's been four years since the state took over Camden Schools, and Christie praised the results. 49% graduation rate back in 2012, 70% graduation rate in 2016. Uh, I've come here to Camden to do something that might
1: have been uh, unthinkable just a few years ago. And that's to hold you up as a symbol of promise for the name. This is Robbie Gupta, and you're listening to The Regressives. This is a narrative podcast series from Lost Debate that examines progressive policies, ideas, and leaders in practice. And, you know, I'm a veteran of progressive campaigns, and I've long felt that liberals professed values and practices sometimes are out of sync with the majority of the people they intend to serve. And so this podcast is dedicated to shining a light on those discrepancies and the hopes of eliminating them. And this is a limited series from The Lost Debate. We're putting on The Lost Debate show feed for now, but it's eventually going to be living in its own podcast feed. And in today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Paimon Rahanafard. I've long been an admirer of Paymon, and he's an educator who's credited with transforming Camden, New Jersey schools. His journey started in 2013 when then-Governor Chris Christie appointed him as the superintendent of Camden schools after decades of poor performance of those schools, and he went on to transform the experience for kids in that district and really provide a playbook for people trying to do similar things around the country and what I love about Paymon is he did it in one of the most difficult places if not the most difficult place to do it in America and so he gives us hope about what we can do in the future to help kids across this country and this is a little bit different than some of the other regressives episodes this is kind of a hopeful episode it's less about finger wagging about people doing things wrong and more about a highlight of somebody doing it right I really enjoyed this interview let's jump in Hey, man, welcome to the podcast.
0: Great to be here, Robbie.
1: So I think let's start your journey at the point where you're appointed as the superintendent of Camden City Schools. How old were you when you got that appointment?
0: I was 32 years old.
1: What What was your background heading into this role, and and what kind of reception did you receive before you started within the city of Camden?
0: Yeah, so I did Teach for America right out of college, uh, taught two years, uh, sixth grade in West Harlem, and I had deferred an offer to work in finance, actually. And so I ended up um, joining the investment banking world and spent a few years in private equity. And then uh, really my second year, though, in the classroom, the lights went off for me and I saw the matrix and I knew that's that's where I wanted to be uh, professionally. And uh, to make a long story short, I, I transitioned to work in policy at the New York City Department of Education, working for you know, the Bloomberg administration, working for Chancellor Joel Klein, and, and so uh, just spent the next several years doing district work, which uh, once we got termed out is what led me to um, go to New Jersey.
1: I have an experience of just running one school, I think when I was 28, and that took some convincing. You were running a bunch of schools at 32 years old, I imagine you were met with some skepticism given how young you were and how much time you'd spent in the classroom, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, certainly a lot a lot of skepticism, uh a healthy dose of pushback. And I, you know, I recall in terms of when we first, you know, landed and hearing those critiques, for the most part just trying to deflect but when really pushed, I would just remind people that first of all, I'm the 13th superintendent in 20 years in Camden. And so, and we'll I'm sure talk about this, but sort
1: of that so it's like the New York Jets of uh <laughs> head coaching.
0: <laughs> it's like to, Yeah, I don't know who yeah. I don't know who Adam Gase would be in my as far as my predecessors go, but yeah. Yeah. Uh and and so I, I would remind them of that and 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 tell them that the 12 before me had walls and walls of degrees. And it didn't really amount to significant outcomes uh, and benefits to the school system. And so uh, for the most part, we just tried to deflect, pivot, and move on.
1: So paint a picture for us, for those of us who haven't followed the ins and outs of of Camden's trajectory, uh, you took over in 2013, is that right?
0: 2013, that's right.
1: Paint a picture for us. Like, what was the state of the school system and just the city of Camden in 2013? What was attempted and failed in that city um, as you stepped into your role?
0: You know, Camden's so interesting because when you go all the way back actually to the late 90s, there was a call for the state to intervene. Prominent elected officials, I think in 1998, there was a New York Times piece about it, were asking for help from the state because things were in such disarray. And 2013, it really wasn't all that different. So then there were 27 district-operated schools, and I believe 23 or 24 of them were in the bottom 5% statewide in terms of overall proficiency. Nearly 90% of Camden schools, 23 out of 26, are in the bottom 5% performance-wise of all in New Jersey, including the three lowest-performing schools in the state. More so than test scores, there were scandals that were well-chronicled. In terms of operational and fiscal fraud, in many cases, uh, there was a, a testing scandal uh, in terms of uh, you know fixing outcomes and money being laundered from the central office from within schools, and, and so it, it was really a place where chaos is, is the word that comes to mind. And I, I would hear this from parents all the time. You know, the central office they would never get a phone call returned, and they didn't really know who to go to to answer their questions. So there was just a lot of a lot of chaos and and sort of turmoil.
1: Yeah, I saw a statistic and I, I thought to myself, this couldn't possibly be true, but I think we've both been around the block long enough to know that it's probably sadly is, is that only three graduating seniors were considered college ready when you stepped in. And I know those stats are kind of murky about what college ready is, but- is that reflective of some larger reality you saw?
0: Yeah, I, I I remember that vividly. It was an old SAT threshold. They don't use this anymore. I forget what the score was. This this was back when I think it was a 2400 scale. And I want to say it was like, I don't know, 1300, 1400 on that scale is, is deemed college ready. And, and yes, it was a big soundbite. We actually, for whatever it's worth, did not go out of our way to promulgate it because it was – a bit misleading, and as you mentioned, it these things can get a little complicated. But we had a very low SAT participation rate, which is what really drove that number to be so low. And so I just try to talk about how it was important for us to increase our SAT participation rate because our students should be taking it. Um, but like, by, no matter how you measure it, the the outcomes were were dire, and 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 sort of everything that was going into the process of um, schooling in Camden was in disarray.
1: And you know, for those who aren't super familiar with Camden, what is Camden? Because I think a lot of people, like New Jersey, they think of you know they think of New Jersey as, as the suburbs of uh, of New York. No offense, Jersey, but like they think of it as as tied to New York City. But Camden, I think, is is both geographically different, but also demographically different than uh, a lot of cities in America. I was looking at the statistics of the school system, and it's nearly a hundred percent. People of color, at least some of the from the data I was seeing, what kinds of like what history of like housing and urban policy would lead a place like Camden to exist where it is? I know it's not homogenous because within those communities of color there there's diversity, but why it it has the demographics it does and why it's had. Uh, such a tough go at it in terms of just urban policy generally.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a really important question you're asking. So, Camden is in South Jersey, which, by the way, is Eagles Country for for those that know South Jersey. And so, right across the river from Philly, and it's sort of positioned similar to what Hoboken is in New York City, right? And its its history is similar to that of Detroit where the post-industrial decline is in many ways the beginning of the story. And in Camden, there was incredible concentration in just three companies in terms of where people worked. So roughly 80% of Camden residents in the 1940s and 50s worked at New York Shipbuilder, RCA, and Campbell Soup, which is sort of an incredible thing to think about. And so once those companies move their factories overseas, you know, Campbell soup, their global headquarters is still in Camden, but you wouldn't even know it. It, it, it hmm. doesn't really interact much with the city at all. It's sort of got this big gated compound and uh, you know, a, a very few Camden residents work there. And so, yeah, once um, those jobs left and racist housing policies took over in our country for, for decades, as we all know, and, 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 and the redlining and the white flight into the suburbs of Jersey What was left in Camden is essentially what you see today, which is just deep concentrated poverty.
1: It has been compared to the surface of the moon here on Earth. Parts of it look like Beirut
0: or Fallujah after the firing stopped. But this is America, and this is what poverty looks like. And look at where we are. That's Philadelphia across the river. And then there's Camden. It is the poorest city in America, and it's considered the most dangerous city in this country. And so I think what's interesting about Camden and tragic is even when you compare it to a city like Newark, Newark has a working and middle-class. You know, you go to the Ironbound in Newark and it's a middle-class community. Camden has nary a working class, let alone a middle-class. It is just deep, concentrated poverty. And it's been that way for a very, very long time. And at the root of that, as we know, is just centuries of injustice and, and decades of institutional racism.
1: I came up in this work. You know, I started in, in education reform in 2010 and at that time, it was the Waiting for Superman, Michelle Ree kind of playbook where it was about coming in, busting heads, telling people, you know, it's time for accountability and, you know, firing people on live television or on television, I think. I don't believe that you are going to be the leader who is going to take this school to in the direction that we need to go in um, and have the highest expectations for the kids. Michelle um, Ree so, spent the first uh, weeks uh, of the school year meeting one-on-one with all 156, 156 principals under her charge. We're um, creating. No, I'm, I'm terminating your principalship now. And I know it's just like, <laughs> it's absurd to say now, but that was... That was our yeah. circles, you and I, back then. That was the trajectory of reform back then, this term that, that people throw around, which means a lot of different things, uh, was really focused on the teacher being the accountable agent and that our biggest problem in schools is that we're not holding teachers accountable enough for their actions. And that that was huge center of focus. As I'm reading about your experience, you didn't come in with this kind of blustering, strident, I'm going to take on the enemies within the system type approach. It seems to me like you you took a different first step. So you want to walk us through just what those first few moves you made were and why you made those moves? There is
0: a town hall we did endlessly when I first landed. Um, and it would, you know, same set of slides, the same story. And it would begin by positing what I mentioned earlier, the root of our challenge centuries of injustice and decades of institutional racism. And that's what has begat poverty and and the conditions we've all inherited. And that is not to lay blame at the feet of educators or any group of people uh, or any institutions, but rather to say, you know, this is a challenge of a significant magnitude and we need to approach it with that sort of understanding and, and the requisite humility to address it. Then I would quickly posit politics and bureaucracies have inhibited the progress that our, that our families and students deserve to overcome that very steep mountain. And that's always an interesting point to make sort of conceptually. And I would try and make it more concrete. And the example I would always give is Camden High School. So you you probably read Savage Inequality. Yes. Yeah. I'm Jonathan Kozol. And I wrote about this years ago in my first book, Death at an Early Age. And then again, much later in a book called Savage Inequalities. And then again, quite recently, in a book called Shame of the Nation. And despite all these years of struggle, we, we still have this bitterly,
1: uh, viciously unequal system. I was thinking of the comparison, the part of the book about East St. Louis reminds me so much of Camden, the trajectory of Camden that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, and just how sad that experience was. Yeah.
0: Well, you may recall there's a, there's an entire chapter devoted to Camden and, 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 you know, Kozal's book. So I read it when I was, I think a a junior in college and it it was in many ways what inspired me to want to teach. And, and so in that chapter, I remember reading it before my first day in Camden, rereading it. And, uh, and so the book came out, what, like late eighties, early nineties, roughly 30 years ago. And, and it chronicled Camden high school as being truly in disrepair. In the winter, the hallways would be 50 degrees. In the summer, they'd be 95 degrees and and just all the issues with the the facility. And when we got there in 2013, so like, yeah, I guess roughly 30 years still after the fact, um, it was in the exact same condition. And there literally had not been a single dollar of capital repairs, just, you know, operating budget, painting walls, changing light bulbs.
1: And just to pause you there for a second, what's the per pupil expenditure in Camden at that point? Uh, in the like, you know, and I know, and this is important to talk about with the bureaucracy is that capital expenditures are different. Uh, so, but what's the per people spending at that point when the buildings are in disrepair?
0: Camden's always been one of the highest per people um, rates in the in the state of New Jersey and in the country. So, then it was like twenty three thousand or so, and today I think it's like closer to twenty eight. Uh, so 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 how high, does that happen? Higher. Yeah,
1: how does that happen where the buildings are in such disrepair and they're spending? Because this is like I know this is like a Republican talking point, right? But I do think right. there's just some truth to like what the heck is going on. And I know like your work under in New York City. There's a whole lot about this, and in, in Joel Klein's book I think like does a really good job of talking through just all the red tape he had to go through. And I know that as like you know, I'm a Democrat. I don't like to talk a lot about. I mean, I do like to talk about, but our friends don't like to talk a lot about just bureaucracy, like you're talking about, like, how does that happen that we spend that much money? And like, I think we should spend as much money as possible on kids, but I think yeah. like, that money has to be well spent, right?
0: So I really want to come back to that point because it sort of puts a bow on um, the uh, the town hall story that we would be sharing. Oh, yeah. but, to, to, to more, but to more directly answer your question, it, uh, it, it there's a, you know, the operating budget can't cover capital expenditures, right? Right. Capital expenditures come through a completely different state entity. So another big bureaucracy, the state developments, uh, the School Development Association. And they're charged with doing capital repairs in the, the, the lowest performing districts because those districts are poor. They can't raise taxes to then float bonds to do capital repairs. So it's in the it's an equitable funding formula. Like they're they're delivering money, the state is, but the process to do it is riddled with red tape but more so riddled with politics. And so what happened in Camden was, and I went on this sort of um, voyage to understand, like, how is it that nothing has happened since Kozal wrote this book? There was a plan in 2007 to put $110 million and, and and to reconstruct the facility. And the school board couldn't agree on how to spend the money. And literally, they had meetings till four or five in the morning, and they missed their deadline to submit it and this is the people blame school
1: board or the camden
0: school board and some people blame the superintendent for not having worked effectively with the board some people certainly just blame the board other people blame the mayor because she didn't use her bully pulpit to kind of get involved and she sort of stood on the side anyways everyone had a different version a lot of people certainly blame the governor because what ended up happening was new new governor was elected they changed the formula for the school development authority and camden lost it's, uh, it's $110 million. And then uh, and, you know, here we land in 2013, and we, we've inherited this entire mess. Um, and so that would be my exhibit A about politics and bureaucracies, the red tape that I would agree progressives don't really want to talk about trade-offs um, uh, related to uh, that work. And, 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 and that fundamentally harmed Camden. And there's no one easy scapegoat. Uh, there's no easy answer as to why it, it it landed where it is other than just kind of the umbrella of bureaucracy and red tape and uh, politics and so what what i would then state to the group is when it comes to our district, we have our own set of politics and red tape just internal to us and i would give a lot of examples of that like when i when i did my listening to our teachers would complain how They would get boxes of brand new textbooks. This looks straight out of the wire season three. And like, no one would even like unpack them because some new program came in before they can implement the last one. And that's like the function of the turnover. I mean, you put a textbook in front of these kids, put a problem on a blackboard, teach them every problem on some statewide test. It won't matter. None of it. And so like politics and bureaucracy just kind of constantly lead to this turnover in the same way Camden High lost its funding. And what we want to do in Camden is to get the district out of the business of being the monopoly operator of schools, to be the the bureaucracy that is in charge of operating schools, but rather uh, a regulator of a system where we ask nonprofits to come in and run our schools. uh, And we hold them to a very high standard that is fundamentally equitable, that is about serving all students. And so that is a very big topic in and of itself. And obviously, we're talking about charter schools. And so I would just spend a lot of time talking about what is a charter school and what isn't a charter school, and how our schools will be different. So let me just pause there because I know that there's a lot of different directions. We can
1: yeah, go. if it's not immediately clear to listeners, you went around and basically were listening to people, from what I understand, in the beginning. Like you were, you were building relationships with the community, and I found that what I find interesting about your story is that, you know, as somebody who's worked in politics as much as I've worked in education, I think you understood. And correct me if I'm wrong that the relationships you were building with that community were more important than your plans were. Because if you didn't have those relationships across the community, both the community within Camden, but I think also you understood this sort of Kremlinology of New Jersey politics uh, and knew that you had to go kiss the right rings in order to do right by your kids, which could be its own story altogether. but. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was really your first step and this is what I was trying to think about like and I, and I I have tremendous respect for the people who came before us. Like I understand that they were going up against a culture around lack of accountability that is maddening and continues in many ways. But you learned something really important there, right? Like you learned that nothing happens unless you have that trust, right?
0: 100%. And I I I would agree, you know, I worked I worked for Chancellor Joe Klein, um, Deputy Chancellor John White, just incredible leaders and, and, and heroes of mine. And, and 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 in a way, we're standing on their shoulders, right? Like they had to sort of knock the door down or turn the floodlights on so that we could then take the solutions to those challenges to a to, to a higher level. And another distinction I would draw is that in New York City, we had the full backing of a mayor and, and Mike Bloomberg who was really invested in. Uh, in education. And and certainly, there, there, there's a lot you could quibble with in terms of decisions that were made. But there was political cover. In Camden, I was more or less on an island.
1: <laughs> yeah, explain and- that for a second. Correct if I'm wrong. You were appointed under some state law that meant that you didn't report to the school board, but you reported to the, is it with the governor?
0: Yeah. So the governor who who was Chris Christie at the time, and for whatever it's worth at that time, was was a very popular governor in the state of New Jersey. So he initiates the decision to do the state takeover with his commissioner, Chris Cerf, who came out of the, the Bloomberg administration. Fard is no stranger to the inner workings of education reform policy and politics. He worked as an assistant to Commissioner Christopher Cerf in the New York City Chancellor's Office and followed Cerf to New Jersey. And so I was the first superintendent appointed subsequent to that. And so it rendered the school board to be advisory only. Um, so the so school board lost its authority over the district. And so here I am being appointed by you know a Republican governor who, while he was popular in, in the state, Cam- Camden is a very, very blue city. Um, And so that's not necessarily favorable politics to me.
1: Yeah. And you're young and like you're easy to caricature at that point. Right. Coming out of a different state, you had a lot of obstacles to building that trust at that point. Yeah.
0: So I I sort of recognize the distinction between uh, authority and power. Right. So like I knew that in order to be able to effectuate our agenda, we had to build goodwill with the political the power brokers, the elected officials, and our community ultimately. And so um, that was a huge part of the work early on because it was existential. <laughs> like, it was sort of, I didn't really have a choice. There were some really interesting fork in the road moments, but for the most part, it was this recognition that even though the school board, you know, the, the chair of the school board, who I'm still very close to, you know, she may have not had the authority in the room. I had all the authority. But she could flick me like a fly off her shoulder with like one <laughs> sentence. And it's like on the front page of the of the Courier Post or Philadelphia Inquirer the next day. And so we certainly treated our school board as though they were a traditionally empowered school board. Um, and we we had our agenda and we, we used our voice when it required us to. Uh, but it was a very delicate balancing act.
1: Yeah. And, and in a way, you had to capacity build, right? And I don't want to give away the ending, but... In, in, at the end of the day, the goal is to get Camden back on its feet so it can be independent again, right? And if you if you don't interact with the school board and empower them and have conversations, you're not investing in that that critical part of the capacity. Just like the schools are, are capacity within that place and you're trying to build them up, that elected school board needs to get at bats too, like participating in these decisions so that you could pass this back to them at some point, right?
0: Yeah, we said that from the very beginning. And this is another like lesson learned from... Prior work that I was a part of. So Newark, you know, at one point was like in year twenty-one of a of a state takeover, and there was a lot of rancor. And it's now back in local control. But from the very first day, we said, in order for us to bring power back to the community where it belongs, uh, and 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 for me to phase out uh, of my work, here's what we need to all accomplish together. And I and I and I do think there's something to be said for that, even if folks didn't necessarily think I was being genuine, right? There was still like a roadmap, like there was an actual formula you had to solve for. Um, And and it did involve test scores, it did involve operational and fiscal improvements. And and so that was a way to bring everyone together.
1: And so let's talk about one of the biggest tools you use to help improve the situation in Camden, which is uh, this concept of Renaissance schools. So tell us a little bit about what those were or are and and why they are important for you? How do you use them?
0: Yeah, so this goes back to the earliest town hall conversations and and how we're going to be able to overcome the politics and bureaucracies that led us to the place that we're in. And so the starting point of these discussions was always one of sort of curiosity, but, but ultimately a lot of heads nodding, like, yeah, we need to do something about politics and bureaucracies. And so the next part of that discussion was about Renaissance schools.
1: Come September, Camden families will have two new schools where they can send their kids. They're Renaissance schools, hybrids of public and charter schools. Over the next five years, both could draw as many as 7,000 kids out of the Camden system.
0: What if the district operated fewer comma better schools and brought on Renaissance school partners to help us provide a higher quality education with a revitalization of our facilities, which is what-
1: And what's a renaissance school partner uh, in that context?
0: So it's a byproduct of the Urban Hope Act, which I think is one of the best pieces of education legislation I've ever come across, which is a hybrid district charter school. So it's authorized by a separate state agency. And I'm not to get too kind of wonky in the details here, but there's a contract with the local district where the district gets to stipulate. So uh, obviously that's us, gets to stipulate how this school sort of behaves. And what's what's really unique about Renaissance schools is that they serve all students in a geographic catchment area. So there's not your traditional lottery mm-hmm. uh, that's citywide, and they have to serve all comers. And just to and pause the district, there for
1: people who aren't familiar yeah. about what you just described. So traditional charter schools like mine operated, like when I was running Republic schools in Nashville Prep, and this is true of most charters, we do a lottery if we have more applicants than we have seats. And that means that, and there's usually not a geographic restriction on who can attend that school other than the boundaries of the entire city. So in Nashville, we had you know people as far south as Antioch, so crisscrossing the entire city. And there are pros and cons to that, right? The pro is that your your neighborhood doesn't determine your destiny, and you can go to a school if you think it's high quality. The, the downside is that It has scale issues. If everybody's doing that, you can't really run a transportation system. You can't build sort of neighborhood identity and connect with other neighborhood supports and coordinate with them in the same way if you have to do it all across the city. So I'll just pause there and give it back to you to keep explaining this.
0: No, that no, you you hit the nail on the head there. So what we were uh, able to do with the Renaissance schools was, as as you mentioned, so it's it's a neighborhood school and. It also required the, the Renaissance School Partner, which, which by the way had to be a nonprofit organization, to either significantly rehab an existing building or build a new one. And, and a significant rehab, like not, you know, paint on the walls and, and, and the like, but at least 50% of the value of the facility. So you're talking about millions of dollars. And these are buildings, in, in, in the case of a you know, a few that did turnarounds that have huge importance to the city. And we're able to put $30 to $50 million in to rehab them or you just have brand new, beautiful new facilities. And and critically, they they could do this because they didn't have to go through the school development authority like we did, right? And so they get a little incremental funding and they can then use that recurring revenue to float a bond and and, and do this work. And they're required to do it. So it's both a play to provide a better quality education, but also to revitalize neighborhoods.
1: Wow, and how many... uh... Charter networks took you up on that and how many schools were renovated using that mechanism?
0: So we brought on three charter management organizations, KIP, Uncommon Schools, and Mastery. Uh, I, I actually don't even know what the count is today, um, but it's 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 you know in the 12 to 15. School range across those three organizations,
1: and and that's uh, a lot all, for all th- people who don't know the size of Camden, right? Camden is what between seven and eight thousand kids, or something like that. How many kids are in Camden?
0: It's, it's a little bit bigger. I mean, all together, it's about fifteen thousand. Oh, fifteen thousand. You know, yeah, but if but like all school types, when we came in, was was a little over thirty, right? Yeah, so. For the Renaissance schools to be that many, and there are some charter schools there as well. Um, so yeah, that that's a that's a really significant number, and the plurality of students today are now in Renaissance schools.
1: So you did two things; you killed two birds with one stone, right? You you brought in money to revitalize schools, which like I know that like our reformer friends are like the building doesn't matter. I've heard this a million times. Like yeah, you try it. Like you try going to, to school <laughs> in one of those buildings. Second. <laughs> You then, you, you not only attracted capital to revitalize those buildings, but you attracted three of the highest performing charter networks in the Northeast. Uh, you know, Mastery has great results in Philadelphia area, from what I understand. Kip ha, has done really well across the country, but particularly Kip's New Jersey team, which I'm not sure if that's who it was who came in with you guys, is very well regarded under Ryan Hill and that team. Yeah. And then you have Uncommon, which is you know. One or two best charter networks in New York, if not the country, you brought in. And once again, nonprofit for people who are keeping score at home, like charters are different types, but most of them are nonprofits, but some places allow for profits. You, you brought in nonprofit institutions to do this. So that that seems like a huge like, double win for you. What did they then do? do within the school buildings other than renovate them? And what have the results been from that effort?
0: Well, I just want to, I just want to double down on what you, what you shared there. I mean, these are, these are nonprofit organizations that uh, deeply believe in, in equity and, and, and embraced the, the sort of the new paradigm that is Renaissance schools to serve all comers. And, you know, I would argue that leaders like Ryan Hill were already way ahead of you know, the, the game on this front. And, um, you know, not all charters sort of do play by the same rules, but um, Ryan was always one that that, that centered, you know, KIPP's work you know, in equity and serving all students. And they just doubled down on that in Camden. Um, and, and in the case of KIPP, they built a mental health clinic in their schools and sort of deep wraparound supports. And, um, and didn't kind of use the same sort of, you know, yeah. as, as one often hears about charters, it's all about test scores. Like they it, it took a very holistic approach with rigor, um, but, but really credit goes to them. Um, you know, the, the results are, are astounding. I mean, in, in, in the case of Whittier school, which is a, a KIPP turnaround, uh, I believe it was 2% proficiency, two or 4% proficiency the year before the school ultimately closed and then, and then reopened, uh, with KIPP and proficiency rates are in the forties now.
1: So those are the test score increases, but you also saw other data points move as well, right? Things like dropout rates. Uh, what are some other data for people who who like, you know, kind of a wider array of sort of stats on student well-being? Like any any other sort of indicators about how kids were doing in those buildings?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you sort of the uh, the quick overview that I, can, that I can recall off the top of my head. So... The graduation rate went up from 49% to 66%. You could argue that was sort of a national trend and not specific to our work in Camden, but the the dropout rate went from 22% to 11%. And the suspension rate we cut in half, more than 50%, uh, as we built more restorative practices and um, trauma-informed care. And the test scores were four and 7% in math and literacy respectively. The year before all these policies were implemented, and are now in the high teens system wide across all schools.
1: And this is a Common Core aligned test, I take it, New Jersey, right? Yeah, now? it's it. I mean,
0: they they remove the label Park, but it's essentially uh, the same yep. test. And I would say most importantly, you know, there have been studies, uh, rigorous studies. So, like Annenberg Institute out of Brown did one on all state takeovers of the last, I believe, six years in our country.
1: And not tr- not a traditionally pro-reform not at all. Organiz- like not at all. organization, if I if I'm if I'm not mistaken. You, you, uh, and so, what did they say? Sorry, that Camden was one of two districts,
0: the other being Lawrence in Massachusetts, that saw significant gains in, in test scores um, during that time period. And uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, and a couple of other studies, one out of the University of Pennsylvania that have validated this work. And, and the, the progress continues. And all, all the credit goes to, you know, the, the current superintendent, she was our deputy superintendent at the time. And there are a lot of nonprofits on the ground that are deeply invested in, 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 in maintaining our policies. And that is perhaps the thing I'm most excited and proud of, that these are not policies you can just easily unwind. You can't you can't put yeah. the toothpaste back in the tube when you've got, you know, a sea of Kip and In Common and, and Mastery schools that parents uh, adore. Uh, very different than like yeah. the
1: tree policies
0: that we were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, and I think this is such an important inflection point in the story of education policy, which is a story that doesn't get a lot of national attention, right? We don't see Democrats on the stage debating the ins and outs of, of policy on education. And, and when they do, it gets very platitudinal really fast, like charters steal money from districts. And they are taking
0: money away from public education. So I think public money should go to public schools and we're to freeze all private charter schools.
1: You know, I'm for school quality, no matter what the mechanism. Let me be clear. I am pro good school. Kind of leads to these kind of one sentence explanations. What I find interesting about Camden is that although you implemented a lot of the reforms that are an extension of this sort of school of uh, education policy reform that that I in many ways came out of and Arnie Duncan and Obama of like charter schools and accountability and more flexibility, you almost in a way updated it to say, all right, there's some valid criticisms of the work that we do. And it's important to address those criticisms no matter what. But this local context requires something of me that requires me to adapt some of the things that we've done. And so if I'm keeping score here, instead of just saying, all right, let a thousand flowers bloom charter school wise, and just have quality operators come and do your thing. You said, all right, if you're going to come here, we're not really as interested in independently operated charters. We need people to come turn around a school. And that's going to come with a certain obligation that intrinsically addresses critiques of charters. Because people will say charters are cherry picking their students. Well, you can't do that here. You've got to take all kids. That means that Also, like a criticism of charter schools is that so people will say they don't take high needs, special needs kids, and that's certainly true of some and not of others, but you can't do that here either. Criticism is you can't, charters don't invest in in other holistic supports like mental health. Well, people are doing that here. There's huge incentives to do that. I mean, I can keep going on, but it seems like you built a structure that almost forced the networks that came in to address some of the criticisms, and I know that that wasn't the end in and of itself, but... What do you think that means now moving forward? Like if you're if you're given that speech, you're trying to give advice to people who are thinking about citywide strategy and school strategy. What's your message to them to say, all right, here's the new playbook?
0: I would say, I mean, I think about it as the other end of the chart of a charter's greatest strength. So the greatest strength being that they are hyper focused on their students and their families and their charter community. Uh, but the flip side being. They lose sight of the collective good, of the rest of the ecosystem. And so Camden being small enough, Camden having sort of unique qualities um, politically, um, we were able to pull everyone together uh, and and, and force whether CMO leaders or, or sort of other nonprofit leaders to all understand the ramifications of our work. And so the Thousand Flowers Blooming strategy, when you think about Detroit and sort of what ended up happening there? I mean, I, I I'm sure there's some argument you can make that it's done some positive for the city, but you you also can't argue against the fact that it's it's an incoherent system, or at least it was at one time. I have yeah. recently, um, and and that's not good for 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 everyone. And that's not good when you know there's supply demand imbalance and and schools are fighting for kids. We were always sort of transparently laying out the data and the information for everyone um, to grapple with together. And and that's what I would say. Like you can't have it. You can't have a school system where like five percent of the schools are serving ninety percent of the special education students. Like that's horrible right. for the students. That's horrible for the school environment and for the faculty and everyone else. And and so like how do we how do we grapple with that together? You know, another example would be and and the biggest perhaps the biggest critique of charters and sort of the, tra- the the transition of of, of funding from. You know, government-operated schools to to nonprofits, and, and the ramifications of that. Well, we could all come together and and manage through that in a way that I was honestly inspired by. So, uh, for instance, we had to reduce our costs, and we found some ways to to navigate that where we didn't have to lay off. But there were other moments where, like, we can't sustain the number of custodians and school security officers we have. Like, we desperately avoided. Those layoffs, because our our custodians and school security officers were the parents and grandparents of our children. They lived in camp. They live in Camden, mm-hmm. right? And so our Renaissance School partners built a shared service agreement with us, and hired those union custodians and security officers to do work at their schools. That's the collective good.
1: A great example of this is is backfilling uh, students. I wrote something years ago because we we would backfill. I, I I would say I would backfill a kid. Until the very, till the lights go out, senior year, because that's what you have to do as a public school, right? If a kid moves into your district or moves neighborhoods, that traditional school down the street doesn't have the luxury of saying you can't walk through these doors. But there are networks, including you know, big one, biggest one here in New York City, that that at least at the time, I don't know what their current policy is, wasn't backfilling, and they were saying, hey, we don't backfill because, and they were giving all these reasons, like kids come in and. They're hard to catch up. I'm like, yeah, tough. Like, that's just what it is. Like, are we public schools or are we not? I believe charter schools are public schools. But when you start to carve out all these exceptions, right? It's one thing to say, I don't want a teacher's union contract, or I don't want all this red tape that says I can't tutor kids after school, or I can't pick my own curriculum, or, you know, give give feedback to my teachers. In my opinion, those are good carve outs for schools because it allows you to serve kids better. Um, and my ability to do that doesn't harm the collective good down the street. Like if I'm if I'm able to coach my teachers better or have tutoring, that doesn't make the school down the street from me worse. Whereas if I don't take the backfill kid who moves to my district from another city, that school down the street has to take that kid in the middle of the year. And then the resentment grows, they're playing by one set of rules that we're not. Um and it affects the larger good and i and i want our charter friends to kind of think that way because we if we're we're not just building little tiny beautiful islands here you know
0: yeah i mean that's you that's such a great example and uh, and to use the word you just used there i mean are we building islands of excellence or are we building a functional coherent high performing school system for all and you know we we set out to do the latter and not the former and and test scores in a way are related to islands of excellence right so I imagine we were going to get to this at some point but sort of my evolution of thinking on on testing is very much connected to the way we thought about renaissance schools and and so when the incentive is just to get test scores up at all costs you're not backfilling right like you're not yeah. taking on the union um, uh, custodians and, and school security officers because you want autonomy over everything and that's sort of giving something at a time when you're just trying to focus on your own results uh, so the collective good, I, I I just think that there is a third way to, to get great outcomes um, and to kind of manage through the unintended consequences.
1: Yeah, I think testing is such an interesting question, right? Here's my view on testing, and you tell me whether you're kind of on the same page, which is I view school testing as a limited and an important tool. It just can't be taken to the extreme, right? And I think of it as like blood pressure test, right? If I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me, hey, like you got high blood pressure, that tells me something really important about my life. Like I shouldn't, unless my blood pressure is really, really bad, I shouldn't use that as the one metric about whether my life is good or bad, and I shouldn't spend all my time thinking about it, but it's an important piece of data. So like where I disagree with a lot of progressives who are like testing is bad, period, is that I would ask them to think about if if your kid couldn't read or write at a basic level or perform basic uh, arithmetic, or in some cases, higher level stuff, which we wanna make sure how would you kids know? do. How, right. how would you know, and how do we know as a system that these things happen? The reason why a lot of major civil rights organizations continue to defend yes. the testing regime is because it gives us data on subgroups and whether systems are equitable or not, et cetera. So that's on one side. On the other side is like, we can't get carried away and make that the only metric, right, that that schools, like yeah. it is a metric. Like if, if your kids can't perform they don't have basic skills. That tells you something really important and everybody a, a, an important thing. But you shouldn't be only focused on those things. We need arts. We need science classes, right, which are often not tested. And, and we need. To, if there ever was a time that we needed to teach people to think scientifically, it's today. As somebody who ran a school network that did really well on testing, there is pressure to collapse the things that don't show up at the end of the year in an objective measure. And we need to figure out that balance.
0: I really like the blood pressure analogy and look, I identify as a liberal and progressive and I find myself in conversations with, uh, with friends who think similarly, uh, you know, broadly speaking, but on the issue of education, like we've gotten into like debates over are data oppressive, right? Like think about that, like data being a manifestation of white supremacist culture and, and, you know, connected to test scores, like let's do away with all of it because it's, it's all oppressive. And to your point, the civil rights movement depended on data to know where inequities were in our country, um, right. to build policies, to address them. And so I, you know, certainly, uh, with testing, that's the starting point for me. Uh, I think about the distinction between being data obsessed and data compelled in terms of our behaviors versus just data informed. And I think that, that speaks to your, that speaks to your analogy. Like I think testing, it should be like yeah. a dipstick, like let's just see where things are. Um, the obsession with formative and interim assessments and, and, You know, really just in math and literacy and that that's that, by the way, uh, a chief critique of mine that we're over testing, but we don't have enough tests. So it's kind of a weird paradox like you, you you, you measure what you value and we don't value science to what you mentioned earlier. Uh, We don't really measure science. We don't have science tests for the most part, state to state.
1: And they're a joke where they do exist, like honestly. Total joke. Like what yeah, size like, beaker like, is this? Like it's like it's stupid. like, bi- bi- it's
0: like <laughs> yeah. ninth grade biology, like not right. even, right? Yeah. Um, and that like to me, that's as big of an issue as like we need more tests. But we need to spend less time testing, and New York yeah, City smaller, is, 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 short
1: is, loop feedback cycles, like that two minute exactly. at the end of the lesson. Like, d- did 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 what I say register? Like, just a couple questions, and they don't always have to be high stakes, right? You could find the limited moments where the stakes matter, and then keep rolling, you know.
0: And 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 um, think about think about this. Like, if we did that across the board for all tests, we wouldn't have the problem we have in New York City, which is almost all the high schools in New York City don't offer physics because it's not a state tested subject and the handful of high schools that provide them are the are the specialized right. you know, high schools wait, wait, What are there like six or eight of those
1: yeah.
0: um, so they're, like they're, they're actually like, bigger consequences to testing than, than most people even tend to talk about
1: here's my this is straight opinion here so I'll label it as opinion. <laughs> I think the white supremacists, also don't want those tests. Like like what I don't think they want us to know how much right, we're right. screwing over people and how the the history of injustice in this country is playing yeah. out in our schools and how we continue to make choices, progressives included, who move to the right neighborhood and wall off their schools and send their kids to private schools, but then try to deny choice for people who don't. The white supremacists want that system in place. And one of the best ways to keep that system in place is that to to remove any sense of data about how fucked it really is. So when I hear my progressive say you're like a, you know, white supremacist for talking about like an opportunity gap or what we used to call the achievement gap, I'd be like, look, that's your opinion. My opinion is that the white supremacists are kind of for for re- for different reasons are kind of with you on getting rid of these tests and maybe you should think about that, you know. That's where I am right now on that question.
0: I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, it's like the, the political continuum has turned into a circle and the far left and the far right have collided head on. Yeah. And, you know, that Ron One DeSantis untested, in Florida. One
1: untested, unvexed island of insanity.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, that, that is where we are. You know, Ron DeSantis in Florida doing away with the state test. Governor Ron DeSantis at Doral Academy Preparatory School announcing the end of the Florida Standard Assessment FSA testing in schools.
1: The FSA is quite quite frankly, outdated. And I think you're
0: going to see more states falling, both on the far left and far right.
1: Yeah. Well, you're a hero. Um, Your work is amazing. And I find your story so interesting. And it's refreshing because it comes at a bookend of my time working directly in schools. And you kind of are that bookend. Like the beginning was the Waiting for Superman stuff, which once again, you know, it was a caricature and it has been caricatured, strangely. And then we're at this point now where... People are getting savvier and more sophisticated and nuanced about how we go about these reforms. And I'm hoping both sides take notice. Like the the progressives who hate reforms listen and say, hey, this is not the reform of 10 years ago. And then those who have been in the middle of these fights hopefully take uh, take a look at what you've done and say, all right. We don't need to abandon it all, right? Like we've all been to these these conferences where where even reformers are saying things like testing is bad and like we can't talk about the opportunity gap and they're bringing those ideas into reform circles. I would want them to to really critically examine Camden and say, "All right, this teaches us something about what we want to keep within the old playbook." So, thank you for the work you've done for kids and and thank you also for providing such an important example for us.
0: Well, right, by at you, Ravi. I've been a, a long admirer of yours from the Cheap Seats, and you know, one theme of our conversation is that our country really stinks at um, centering the pendulum on complex social change, and and so we just desperately need more conversations like this. And and your podcast kind of sits in the nuance uh, of this work, and um, uh, just it's it's a real gift to to all of us. And really grateful for you doing this.
1: Well, thank you very much that's it for The Regressives. I would once again like to thank Paymon for such an illuminating conversation. The Regressives is produced for The Lost Debate by Joe Engelbrecht and Mickey Ayub with research support from Joe Garvey. You could subscribe to Lost Debate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. That's it for The Regressives. I'm Ravi Gupta. Thank you for listening.